Doing something hard creates confidence, doesn't it? You may remember when you started your business and you're sitting at the bank and you're getting, taking out the loan and you're filling out all the paper and you're signing your name. And as you sign your name, your hands are a little bit sweaty and you can hardly hold on to those fancy lawyer pens, right? And, and you're, you're shaking and you're, you can't even get your signature just right because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, there's no way I can do this. There's no way that this is going to work out. I know I have an idea. I know I have the drive. I know I have all of these things. But when push comes to shove, I'm just not actually sure that I can execute. And then you look back 10 years, 15 years, 20 years later, and you see that there's been a success that is beyond what you could have believed. There has been a sustainability to what has taken place that, that would have amazed you that day that you were signing those papers. And 10, 15, 20 years down the road, when it comes to doing something difficult, when it comes to having to take a bold or a hard step, you look back on that day in which you were so scared, that day in which your hands were trembling so, and you remember, you remember, I was scared then too. I was afraid then too, but I did it anyway. And praise God, look at what has taken place and transpired in my life as a result. But just as doing something hard creates confidence, avoiding things that are hard erodes confidence, doesn't it? Avoiding decisions that are difficult, avoiding tasks that are difficult, avoiding ambitions and aspirations that are difficult are typically the result of the greatest regrets in our lives. You look back on your life and you think, I wish I would have gotten married and not been so scared. I wish we would have had children younger and not been so afraid. I wish that I would have taken that plunge on the job. I wish I would have taken that promotion. I wish, I wish, I wish. And you look back over the course of your life and you see a life filled with decisions not made, decisions that were almost, decisions that were should have been. And as you look back and now in the present, you face something difficult. You think back and you think, I didn't do it then. I'm not going to do it now. I wasn't willing then, surely now I'm not going to be willing. So doing something difficult teaches us and it trains our mind, I can. And avoiding things that are difficult trains our minds to think that I won't. And you know, it's this kind of cause and effect. It's this line of, of thinking that stands behind the Christian life in a unique way, in a different way, but it's this that stands behind us. Why is it that God doesn't allow our lives to be easier? Do you ever think about that? Why is it that the scriptures are so clear that living a New Testament Christian life is going to be filled with hardship? It's going to be filled with suffering. It's going to be filled with spiritual warfare. It's going to be filled with things that you really don't want in your life, things that you wouldn't write into your story. And yet all of you that have been a Christian for longer than five or 10 minutes, know, you know, it's hard and it's scary and it's difficult. So why is it? Why is it that God would make, would make us live lives that are so difficult? forced with such hard decisions against the culture so starkly. And what we're going to see is that it's hard lives 
and hard decisions and hard moments. In fact, moments of suffering that allow us to increase our confidence in God and decrease our confidence in ourselves. It's hardship in life that serves to assure our faith and strengthen our faith and propel forward our passion for the things of God rather than for the things of our own lives. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. When you get to Philippians chapter 1, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word together. It is so good to be with my church family this morning and to be able to preach God's Word to you today. It is such an honor. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 27 and read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Verse 27 is a penetrating verse, isn't it? When, when you read what Paul writes and he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think the natural instinct of every Christian is to read those words and to think, not for five seconds. Not, not if I had a million lifetimes and I added all of my best moments together, I added all of my own righteousness together, could I possibly put together a single life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so when Paul tells us that, it's, it's borderline confusing to us because it feels counterintuitive to the gospel when he says it, doesn't it? In fact, what is the gospel? The gospel says itself that you are not worthy of the gospel, doesn't it? The gospel says that you are not worthy of the kingdom of God. You are not worthy of the kindness of God. You are not worthy of the love of God. You are not worthy of relationship with God. You are not worthy of all of these things. But in spite of your unworthiness, God who is worthy, God who is good, God who is holy, loves you in your unworthiness and came to you in his worthiness to give you an inheritance that you're not worthy of. So unworthiness is at the very center of the gospel. It's at the very center of the good news. It's good news because you get what you don't deserve. God, an inheritance with God forever. And so Paul here, he tells us to live worthy of the gospel. And we already know I am not worthy. So how, how do we reconcile that and fit it together? See what Paul has in his mind is what happens as a result of the gospel. What, what Paul has in his mind is what takes place as a result of what God has done for you through Christ in the gospel. That, that in the gospel, God brings you into his kingdom by his own kindness, by his own grace, by his own sovereignty. He brings you into his kingdom and he gives you a new last name. He gives you a new citizenship in a greater kingdom. He gives you a greater treasure and a greater prize, one that moths can't eat and rust can't destroy. He says, 
Christ has come that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that God sent his only begotten son so that he might have many sons and many daughters of all nations. And that's us. We have a new last name. We have a new citizenship. This isn't our home. This isn't our prize. This isn't who we are anymore. And so what Paul is saying is that now that you have a new last name, live up to that last name. Live in honor of the name that you now have. Live out the identity that you've now been given. Live in such a way that you bring honor to the one that has rescued you. Live in such a way that you bring glory to the one that has brought you into his kingdom. Live worthy of his name. Live worthy of his love. Live worthy of his benevolent mercy and grace. There's a... A word there, the word, he says, manner of life. That's the word we get the, our word politics from, right? And the, it means literally to live according to your citizenship, to live as a good, uh, a good citizen, to live out your civic duties, to defend your country and to honor your country, to be patriotic in all of the right ways. And if you'll remember back when we started uh, the book of Philippians, we, we noted that they were a nationalistic group. They, they'd been adopted as a Roman colony and been imparted true Roman citizenship. And they were proud of that. They were thankful. They got all of the benefits and all of the rewards of being citizens of the most powerful empire in the history of the world. And with those rewards came some responsibilities. And so Paul is doing a play on words here. Paul is appealing to that nationalism that is in them. And he's saying, you serve not the Lord Augustus. They called him Lord. You serve not the King Augustus. You serve the kingdom, not Rome. No, no, you serve a Lord before whom the mountains tremble. You serve a Lord whose holiness causes the angels to be traumatized. You serve a king that causes the, the, uh, the oceans to obey his very words and his commandments. So live out that citizenship. Be patriotic for heaven. Be patriotic for the glory of God. Live as good citizens of the kingdom of God. Live in submission to your Lord. Live in submission to your greater master. Live in submission to the call that has come on your life. Be worthy. Be worthy of being citizens of a greater country, of a greater empire, of a greater king. See, there's a relationship here between belief and behavior that's important for us to see, isn't there? If, you, if you'll notice, this is so much on Paul's mind. What does he say? He says, let your manner of life be worthy. That's behavior, right? Like manner of life, the way that you live, the things that you do be worthy. I'm sorry, I lost my, of, of the gospel of Christ. That's belief, right? So, so gospel of Christ, belief, manner of life, behavior. And so there's a relationship in Paul's mind between what you believe and how you behave, like, what, like how those things come together. And, and there's confusion about this in the Christian church. And this, it's not a new problem. It's a historical problem for biblical Christianity. That there's these two encampments, right? Like in one camp, there are people and they focus only on belief. 
And so what they would say is that as long as you believe that Christ was raised from the dead, it's nice if you obey him. It, it's nice if you are a part of the church. It's, it's nice if you do things and try to live faithfully, but it's not necessary. It's unimportant. And what Paul would remind us is what James has said, that this is how the demons believe about Jesus. That the demons believe that Jesus was the son of God and the demons believe that Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world. And the demons believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and the demons believe that Christ will come back and torment them. The scriptures bear witness to this fact. And so like James says, he says, faith without works is dead. And this is a powerless, joyless, salvationless perversion of the gospel to think that belief is the only thing that matters. There's another camp though. There's another camp that only emphasizes behavior. That, that if you don't drink the wrong, as long as you don't drink the wrong things and go to the wrong places and watch the wrong movies and wear the wrong clothes and hang with the wrong people, that as long as you are in church the right number of times and you read your Bible the right number of days and you read this and do that and go over here and exert this energy, then you will have the favor of God on your life. Then you will have the love of God in your life. Then you will prove yourself sure and true as a son or a daughter of God. And this is a joyless, powerless, salvationless perversion of the gospel. Now, what we have Paul teaching us is that the gospel begins with belief as the cause and behavior as the effect. That it begins with belief as the cause and behavior as the effect. That because I believe the gospel with all of my heart, I will now live out the gospel with all of my life. Because I am a child of God, I will live like a child of God. That belief is the cause and behavior is the effect. And they work in concert with one another so that your manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, living worthy of Christ begins with the belief that Christ is worthy of all your life. Living worthy of Christ begins with the belief that Christ is worthy of all of your life. It is to recognize Jesus as the only prize worth having. And so live with a tunnel vision, laser focused life on him as the prize, on him as the treasure, on him as the center of everything. So you can look at your life and you can ask, how is it that I can know what I believe? How is it that I can know that I am walking in faith by Christ? What, are, what is the effect of my belief? What does my life look like? What do my priorities say? What, what is the behavior in my life indicating that my behavior will reveal my belief and faulty behavior will reveal a faulty belief. But the belief comes first as the cause. I am who I am because of Christ is who he is and I will do what I will do because I am who I am. That it begins with who I am and leads to what I do. Right now, I wanna frame this up in, in terms of joy because we've been talking so much about joy lately. Right now, how can you know if your joy is found in Christ alone? See, see that, that is the kind of faith that saves you. To say that, that my joy right now is not going to be found in my circumstances. My joy is not going to be found in my income. My joy and security are not going to be found in my retirement account. My joy is not going to be found in my relationships or in my children or in my family. My, my joy is going to be found in Christ alone. How can I know that? 
right now in your life, if you could get, if, if you could get that one thing that you really want, would you be willing to lessen your devotion to Christ to have it? Right now in your life, the one thing that you want more than all other things, would you be willing to sacrifice and to lower and lessen your devotion to Christ so that you might can get it? In other words, if the right man came into your life and it, was a, it would require you to compromise your, your sexual ethics, and it was to require, he would require you to be unequally yoked with him. Things that we know the scriptures are clear about that will that damage your devotion to Christ, damage your faithfulness to Christ. Would, would you be willing to lay down faithfulness to Christ to have the happiness and security that you can find in that relationship? Would you be willing to, to lessen your devotion to Jesus so that you can have the man of your dreams? that indicates that you believe that he is a greater source of joy than Christ. What if the right job came along? If, if, the, if the right job with the right salary or the right side hustle with the right additional income came into your life and it was to promise you the level of income that you've always aspired to and the level of income that you've always desired, but would you be willing to compromise on what the scriptures teach about the importance of marriage? and the importance of family, and the importance of priorities, and the importance of, of being a part of the life of the church, would you be willing, in other words, to lay down your complete and utter devotion to Christ so that you might have that which you have always aspired to? If so, then that job is viewed in the recesses of your heart and soul as a greater source of joy than Christ is. I wonder if the, if the right classmates invited you to the right party. You know that there are things there that compromise everything that you've ever believed in, everything that you've ever desired to be and to do. But if the right people that you want to fit in with invited you to the right party or the right place, would you be willing to go? Would you be willing to set down your devotion to Christ so that you can have the acceptance that you want? If so, then that acceptance for you is of greater priority and a source of greater joy than Jesus is. And it will, not it might, it will drive your behavior. So right now, brothers and sisters, look at your life. What, what does the relationship between belief and behavior reveal about your own life? Lock your eyes on the prize of Christ alone. Believe on Christ for joy alone. Believe on Christ for peace alone. Live a life worthy of Christ Jesus because Christ is all of your life. And when you believe those things about Christ, let that belief shape your budget and your schedule and your priorities and your marriage and your Netflix account. As we move into the body of what Paul begins to unpack, he begins to give them instructions on what that looks like. He begins to give instructions on what it looks like to live a life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll notice uh, what, what he says there at the end of verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponent. So he gives these three clear instructions, these, clear, these three clear descriptions of what it looks like and what it means to live a life that honors Christ. And what we can see from each of these descriptions of, of standing firm, of striving together, of, of not being frightened, is that this is not for the faint of heart. 
This is not for the faint of heart. Every one of these indicate and imply that this is going to be a difficult life. They all imply that this is not going to be an easy road a hoe. That you stand firm because you might be tempted to waver. That you strive together because you might be tempted to back down in isolation. That you aren't frightened and you refuse to be afraid and stand courageously because it would be easy for you to become intimidated and to cower down from faithfulness. And so Paul implies laying behind the very descriptions and instructions that he gives that this is not going to be an easy life that's in front of us. So the question becomes again, why is this life going to be so hard? And what I think we're going to see is that there is a cause and an effect, both of which come together for the means of providence in our life, for our good and for our joy and for our hope and confidence in the gospel. So the first instruction that he gives is stand in God's spirit, not your strength. Stand in God's spirit, not your strength. In the book of Philippians, Paul says two different occasions to stand firm. He says it here and then he says it again in chapter four, verse one. And in both instances, he makes reference to standing firm in God. Here, I think it ought to be capitalized and I have some reasons why I think it ought to be the ESV thought differently, but he says to stand firm in the spirit. I believe he is talking here about the Holy Spirit, to stand firm in the Holy Spirit of God. In chapter four, verse one, he says, stand firm in the Lord, that the way that you stand firm and the position in which you stand firm is in God. That is, your ability to stand firm in the battle is not because you are strong. It is not because you are determined. It is not simply because you are resolute. Your ability to stand firm is based upon the strength and character and power of God himself. Last year, Gracie, Kate, and I, we were moving something in the house. And you might imagine that my six-year-old little girl is not the strongest mover in the world, okay? But she likes to be used and she likes to, to do things and help dad and be with dad and all those kinds of things. And so she was going to help me move something. And so we, we were carrying, it was, it was pretty heavy, but you know how you do. Like I'm holding up enough of it so that it's not going to crush her. But at the very same time, like I'm letting her feel some of the weight so that she feels like she's doing something. And so we're moving it and man, you could tell that she was impressed with her performance. That like her, her performance had exceeded her own expectation that she was looking at this big heavy thing that she was carrying and she was like, what's up? You know, like, how do you like me now? And so she began to say, hey, dad, dad, I, I can get this by myself. Dad, I, I can carry this. Dad, dad, let me carry it. And I would say, honey, you, you can't. Like, I'm, I'm still carrying most of it. No, dad, I can do it. Let me do it. And, and I, I tried to reason with her. But you know, like sometimes the best way to teach your child is just to let them get crushed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so I thought, you know, Lord, this seems like a great opportunity for humility. Blessed are the meek, right? And so um, I said, all right, honey, you, you won't listen. And so I just let go. And immediately, immediately she realized her error and she realized how overwhelmed she was. She said, dad, dad, I don't have it. I don't have it. I don't have it. And, and you know, of course I, I, I grabbed it. But, you know, I think that's a picture of our walk with God. We cannot bear the weight of our own lives. We cannot bear the weight of our own lives. Sometimes we, we live and we think, man, I've got this. I've got this. And we stop praying. And we stop seeking the Lord. 
And we stop seeking fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ because in our minds, life is under control. Uh, David, he writes in, in, in Psalm 30, he says, I, I saw and I saw how prosperous my hand was, but you withdrew your hand and I was dismayed. So often in our lives, we look up to God and we say, God, I've got it. We're impressed by our own performance and our performance exceeds our expectations. And we say, Lord, let me have all of the weight. Lord, let me make myself successful. Lord, let me make myself strong. Lord, let me prove my worth to you. And the Lord, carrying just enough so that we can feel the weight, but not so much that it crushes us, lets it begin to, to weigh down on us and hold us down. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the child of God is to look up to the to the almighty and say I don't have it dad I don't have it dad can you take it from me See, this is what Paul is talking about in the Christian life when he says stand firm in the spirit the, the image that he uses in the word is a is a battle term and it's it's the picture of soldiers a platoon of soldiers that are behind enemy lines and they're pinned down and they they can't do anything and they have resolved that this is going to be their last stand one way or the other whether it costs them their lives or not see brothers and sisters we we are behind enemy lines and god is advancing his kingdom there and he has called us to love those who hate us he has called us to be gentle with those who are harsh with us. He has called us to be kind to those who attack us. He has called for us to be self-controlled in a world of temptation. And the truth is, not a single one of us are able. Not a single one of us are capable. That is an impossible life. Except, except all of those are the fruit of the Spirit. All of those are the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit and dwelling a believer, seeking after God so that now I can do what I ordinarily can't do and my heart wants what my heart naturally doesn't want. And now, now I can live a life that is worthy of Christ, not because I am standing strong in my strength, but because I am in the Spirit. You see the relationship between cause and effect here? The, 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 the belief and behavior here? I believe that I am indwelt with the Spirit. I believe that God has secured me. I believe that I am his child. I believe that it is irreversible. I believe so. So as the bullets come flying past my head, as the night tarries on and the weeping continues, I will stand firm. Brothers and sisters, you can stand firm not because you are strong and not because you are wise and not because you are able. You can stand firm because God is in you. The second instruction that he gives us is to strive together, not alone. Strive together, not alone. Too many have learned this lesson the hard way, haven't they? And some of you could come and I could come and I could bear witness to this myself. You see, you see, for all of us who now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we have a hunger for something we didn't hunger for before. And we have a, a thirst for something that we didn't thirst for before. We want to live worthy of the name of Christ. We want to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that inclination wasn't there before. That desire wasn't there before, but now it's there. And so this is what we typically do. We resolve about New Year's. Or about this time of year as the school year starting back, we're kind of getting back into our routines a little bit. We resolve, all right, I'm gonna start getting up earlier. 
Finally, I am going to walk with God. I am going to do this Bible reading plan. I am going to go on this mission trip and we write it on the calendar and we have all of these plans that we're going to, and then what happens? Monday comes, right? Monday comes and you sleep through the alarm and you hit the snooze three times and then the mission trip rolls around. You're like, man, I really can't afford it. I really can't swim. I got a lot going on and you, you drop it all out. You had this desire to strive after Christ, but you didn't have the follow through. Most of us in our Christian life, if we're honest, our Christian life is characterized by fits, by starts and fits, right? So what's the solution? What's the answer? The answer is, is that we are not in this by ourselves. We are not in this by ourselves. We are called to stand, but not to stand alone. We are called to pursue, but we are not called to pursue alone. We are standing together in one spirit. We are striving together with one mind. It's not one person in a tunnel vision pursuit of Christ. It's a whole church. See, he shifts metaphors a bit in uh, verse 27. He starts by standing firm and it's, it's this battle, this warp metaphor. And then, then when he says that we are to strive together, what, it, it's, it's an athletic uh, it's an athletic metaphor. And so the, the picture here is not an individual sport, but a team sport. That it's all, to, all one team coming together. And you guys have, have seen this before, right? Like you see a team that's maybe less talented, like the Raptors just took down uh, the Golden Warriors, right? Like that nobody thought that was gonna happen in the NBA, but why? The Raptors were the better team. They didn't have the better players, but they were the better team. And so he's, he's saying here, like the idea is to have a team in which you have one mind and you have one spirit and you have one goal and you have one vision, you have one desire, one passion, one mission. So much so that it's almost like all of you are coming together with the different things that you bring to the table, the different aspirations that you have and the different callings of God that you have. And you're all coming together as one team with multiple abilities to function as one person to think with one mind, the mind of Christ, to pursue one goal, the mission of Christ, to go for one end, the glory of Christ. And so now you come together to strive after Christ, not in isolation, but together. You know, Mike Tyson famously said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. How many of you, how many of you would say in your Christian life, I've had plan after plan after plan and every single one of them have failed. Every single one of them have not led to me pursuing Christ with, with greater passion. Could it be it's because you're planning alone? See, the Spirit of God has an effect. One of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit, and we've just found we're standing firm in the Spirit, these build on one another. One of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bind together the church in unity to bind together the church exactly as she is to be composed with the exact giftings that she is supposed to have and the exact experiences that she is supposed to have with the exact passions that she is supposed to have to come together and to function as one body together pursuing Christ. That we are to come together in such unity that we are a billboard to our community that what is happening among the people at Iron City is not possible by mankind alone. It is not possible by human resolve. It is a unity that transcends all human possibility to something that is supernatural and only done by the Almighty Himself. I wonder if that's what the world sees in us. I wonder if that's what the world sees in us. 
That, that in other words, that if we want our young men to run after God, we need our senior adult ladies to run after God. That, that if we want our teenagers to be men and women of God, we need our young moms and our young dads to be men and women of God. That your faithfulness affects my faithfulness and my obedience affects your obedience. That we are brought together to function as one. And if I don't do my part and you don't do your part, all of us will begin to fail in our striving after Christ together. That in isolation, we will wither and die, but bound together to the true vine. We are vines that will bear fruit that we cannot bear alone. Iron City, we've got to be a team. Pursuing and striving after Christ is a team sport, not for spectators, but for participants and players. You have experiences that I don't have and I have experiences that you don't have and you have gifts that I don't have and I have gifts that you don't have. And if we have the Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit is to bring us to do, remember what he says in 1 Corinthians 12 when he's talking about the spiritual gifts? We have been baptized together into one body by one Spirit. If the Spirit is creating oneness in the people of God, we ought to be able to see not where my, my strengths begin or where my weaknesses end, but how all of us are stronger when we come together. Is it any, is it any mystery why the majority of the fruit of the Spirit are all rela are relational? That we are to love one another, but not with human love, with spiritual love. That we are to be patient with one another. We are to be kind to one another. We are to be self-controlled with one another. We are to be gentle with one another so that through the power of the Spirit, because of the fruit of the Spirit, we can be bound together. And being bound together, we will present an indivisible church and an unstoppable mission to transform our community. You know what? I'm easily discouraged. It's just the truth. I'm easily discouraged and I need you to encourage me. I'm easily unfaithful and disobedient and I need you to help me be faithful and to help me be obedient. I sometimes want to back down when I need to move forward and I need you to stand behind me and push me forward. A lot of times I wanna throw in the towel and quit and I need you to remind me that we cannot quit. And brothers and sisters, I will stand there beside you and do the same thing. Let us spur one another on to good works. Let us lead one another on into greater faith. We want us to strive together. The final instruction that he gives us is to seek courage, not comfort. Seek courage, not comfort. You see how these are building? That if you seek to live worthy of the gospel, if you stand firm in the spirit and don't waver on the truth, if you strive together and don't back down, it's going to make your life harder, not easier. It's going to bring suffering into your life. It's going to bring hardship into your life. It's going to bring opposition into your life. And that's why he says what he says. Don't let the opposition frighten you away. If, if the enemy cannot defeat you morally and the enemy cannot defeat you physically, he will work to intimidate you psychologically and emotionally. The, the picture that he uses here is a, a term that is used in, in, uh, uh, with horses, that you have these mighty horses that are filled with power and elegance and, and strength. And then a small sound that's harmless frightens them and startles them and they begin to run and panic and hurt themselves. 
We are the church and we are mighty and strong because of who God has made us to be. But if we startle easily, if we are afraid of our own shadow, if we do not stand firmly in our confidence upon God, we will hurt ourselves. We will damage our weak witness. We will render, render ourselves impotent to what God desires to do through us. See, what's amazing here when you think about it is the cause and effect that lies behind what he's saying. He's saying that if you live faithfully, you will face opposition. And facing opposition, you will need great courage. In other words, that your, belief, your, your suffering is the effect of your belief. That your belief leads to your suffering. But there's another layer to it. Not only does your belief lead to your suffering, but your belief is the cause behind your courage. So your belief causes your suffering and your belief causes your courage. Listen to what he says. This is, this is really amazing. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There's two gifts here. There, there, there's not one gift of belief and then another necessity suffering or another, another unavoidable evil suffering. No, there are two things that are granted to you. There is belief and there is suffering. Both of them have been given to you so that you can love God and know God and have confidence in God. You have been given belief. You have been given belief. And because you believe, you will suffer. But the suffering should not be seen as being contrary to faith or against your faith or destructive to your faith. No, no. The hardship in your life and the suffering in your life and the opposition in your life, that is a gift from God too. And God, God will use the very same belief that invited the opposition and invited the suffering to bring courage to you so that you can stand where you ordinarily couldn't stand and do what you ordinarily couldn't do and go where you ordinarily would be unwilling to go. I was listening to a podcast by a former uh, director of the CIA and he said this, out of chaos comes opportunity. See, in your life, when you face suffering and you're in the midst of chaos and you're trying to figure out how do I fit all of this together? How do I know this is all going to work out? How do I know that this is actually worth the hardship that I know that I can look at my life and I can realize that that suffering and that opposition and that hardship is an opportunity for me. That suffering is life's greatest opportunity to display the worth of Christ. And suffering is faith's greatest opportunity to be shown secure. Throughout the Old Testament, there was a single incident, a single incident that Israel often remembered. That Israel in Exodus, we, we turn there and they are enslaved to the people of Egypt. And it seems as though God isn't there. And it seems as though God isn't going to answer them. And as Moses begins to lead the people out of Israel, time and again, the people of Israel, they want to cower down and they want to return to Pharaoh. But Moses leads them and the Lord splits the sea and rains the bread and leads them by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And they begin to go across the desert and into the promised land where they are ultimately delivered by God's name. And over and over and over, what does Israel say? Do you remember what God has done? Do you remember that he delivered our fathers from Egypt? Do you remember how he rained down the bread, how he split open the sea, how he did what we didn't think he would do? Won't he do it again? 
Oh, brothers and sisters, the hardships in our life are there not to crush us, not to defeat us, not to prove God absent, but rather to prove that we have a courage that is well founded, anchored, that will not be proven and will not be shaken. Instead, we can look back and know God did it then and God will do it now against all odds and in the face of all opposition. What does Paul say? He says, it doesn't matter how strong your opposition is, God will destroy them. It doesn't matter how weak you are, how timid you are, how fearful you are, as weak as you are, God will save you because that that, that is the legacy of the gospel. So my brothers and sisters, stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Strive together in your pursuit of the Lord and don't back down for anything. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.